Hi everyone, this is Bolo Zenden from the Netherlands and you're listening to Linux for Everyone, episode 25. Hallo allemaal, ik ben Boudewijn Zenden. Je luistert naar Linux for Everyone, aflevering 25. Welcome one and all to Linux for Everyone, episode 25. My name is Jason Evangelo, and this is the show about desktop Linux, open source software, and the people creating and enjoying it. This episode's a special one for me because anytime I get to sit down with someone who is creating and directly involved with a Linux distro, it, it never fails to open up these new doors where you, you can look at things from a new angle and hear a different perspective than y- you might expect. And that was exactly my experience with Ubuntu Budgie team member Dustin Chrysak. And uh, next to my interview with Elementary OS's Daniel Foray, this is probably one of the most inside baseball conversations that I've had about what it's like to be inside of a Linux distribution and the struggles and the triumphs and what that that circle of support is like. And there we covered so much stuff. And even with the editing, it's about 60 minutes long. As I've said before, I like to keep these episodes 45 minutes to 60 minutes at the most. But you know what? Sometimes there's that chat comes along where it just seems like an injustice to cut too much of it just just in the interest of time. So what I'm going to do this week is we're going to skip the discovery of the week, and we're going to double up on that next time for episode 26. And right now, I'm going to jump into your mountain of amazing feedback from last week's community voice segment about distro hopping. And then I'm going to take care of some quick housekeeping, and then we'll dive straight into my chat with Dustin. Last week, I found myself pondering, why do we distro hop? Everyone probably has a reason for it, and those reasons are varied. If your feedback is any indication, I asked you to send your thoughts over to linuxforeveryone at pm.me, and wow, you you certainly did that. (laughs) I had so many responses, and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to, uh, to write down your thoughts and send them in. Let's kick it off with an email from Eric Adams, who is also the co-host of DLN's. Let's kick it off with an email from Eric Adams, who is also co-host of DLN Extend on the Destination Linux Network. I can't speak for everyone as to why they feel the need to distro hop, but in my case, it comes down to two things. One is seeing the continued evolution of the things I already know and use, and the other is discovering new things. Distro hopping is a fun hobby, but sadly, it can be disruptive. If it causes you to not get things done because you're forever undoing and redoing things, 
that can be a problem. My solution is to dual boot. One installation is my stable, work-ready system, and the other is my testing or my fun install. I can play around to my heart's content and still get back to a stable system to get things done. The other thing I do try is things in a virtual machine. I can have an experience with a distro without disrupting anything on my system. Ultimately, I'm really just curious and taking a quick look in many cases, so a full hardware install is overkill. Remember to distro hop responsibly. Thank you, Eric. And I, I do like that suggestion about dual booting. Uh, I think if if you've got enough space on your drive, that is a solid recommendation. Keep one for your, your stable daily driver and another one for fun. The next bit of feedback comes from Wylel, and I, I hope I'm saying that right. Wylel? I think it's Wylel. Anyway, he says, first, love the podcast. As always, thank you for helping unite the Linux community. On the topic of distro hopping, my story is a bit different than others. I've been interested in computers, both hardware and software, since the age of 13. I remember my first computer I ever owned was one that I built. It had the cool all-plexiglass case with the black light inside, because of course it had to, a whopping 512 megabytes of RAM, which was pretty good for its time, and a 32 gigabyte hard drive. I don't remember what processor I had, but I do remember it having Windows XP. Now don't get me wrong, Windows XP was great, but for me, Windows always lacked something. I love tinkering, changing, and manipulating hardware and software, and you can't really do that with Windows. However, it wouldn't be until I was 18 before I found Linux. Back then, it was a mess, but I still loved it. Linux fixed that tinkering itch. Of course, like most, my first distro was Ubuntu. I fell in love. I didn't start distro hopping until later, and these were all dual boots. I was a gamer, of course, so I couldn't leave Windows. I tried CentOS, Debian, Fedora, and OpenSUSE at the time, and then fell away from them. Fast forward to about one year ago, when I was so fed up with Windows, I was ready to scream. I did some gaming research, found out about Proton and your podcast, and said, hell yeah, my current games run fine on Linux, I'm swapping now. I wiped out my entire Windows install and put Pop! OS on my machine. But on to the distro hopping. I have slowly been working toward the leanest, most me-in-control distro over the last year. I have settled on Arch. However, I haven't installed it myself yet. I've been through many Ubuntu derivatives and really haven't liked any. I tried XFCE, GNOME, and KDE, and settled on KDE. Right now, I'm on Endeavor OS, and each time I get a little closer to vanilla Arch. And he says, I love Arch because it's mine. It can always be mine. I get to choose every single aspect of it. And so his approach to distro hopping is, is kind of, you know, refining what, what his forever distro might be and ruling things out and discovering new things and getting to the most clean, pure Linux distribution that works for him, which is what it's all about. Eduardo writes in, and he said that he started being Linux curious during the Ubuntu Warty Warthog days. But then he explains that over time, he actually lost interest and lost his love for Linux because it required so much, uh, so much working around issues to make hardware sing with Linux. And then he says, fast forward to around Ubuntu's Zenial timeline. I started picking it up again. 
I was amazed at how far Linux had come. I had mostly stuck with Ubuntu Mate for most of the succeeding years. Throughout 2019, though, I increasingly used Linux for work. I tinkered around with Debian-based distros mostly, and experimented briefly with Fedora and OpenSUSE. I was yearning for one distro I could stick with long-term for most of my work. Which brings me to when I heard your question. Right now, I take the approach that there is a distro for each workflow that I have. I use the distro that best suits the workflow of the task at hand. And this is the wonderful effect of the choices we have. I have not closed the door to the possibility of my forever distro, but it's okay if I don't find it right away. I love that we have the ability to choose freely. Thank you for the great conversations, Eduardo. I have nothing to add to that because that's just a beautiful email, and uh, it's a smart approach as well, a workflow-based decision for, for the distro that you're using. I love it. This next one is from Tim, and he says that he started trying Linux nine years ago. He had the typical driver problems, but was fascinated with Linux Mint and planned to come back every now and then to see how it was maturing. Now I'm distro hopping to find which distribution I want to keep as the daily driver when I migrate from macOS. And the finalists are Mint Cinnamon, Elementary, and Zorin Ultimate, which I bought just to contribute even if I don't end up using it full time. Kudos to you, sir, and thanks for the feedback, Tim. And for the complete other side of the story, David writes in and he says, Jason, I don't distro hop anymore. I had played with Ubuntu back when it was a Wubi installer inside of Microsoft Windows. I discovered Fedora met my criteria for capabilities and security back in 2009, and I've been using that ever since. Fedora is a good fit for me. I work with RHEL, Scent professionally, and Fedora is extremely close to those since it's the testbed for future RHEL releases, and that's uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. I have played with Puppy Linux a bit, Fred, you'll be happy to hear that, and occasionally Kali, but distro hopping is just not something that I do. I also used the System Rescue CD a few weeks ago to blank the administrator password on a Microsoft XP system that I hadn't accessed in about 10 years. So there you go, David. <laughs> Thanks, David. I, I applaud you. I mean, it must be nice to stick with the same distro for 11 years. I've used about eight or nine distros in the, in the uh, year and a half that I've been using Linux. <laughs> we can dream, right? Anyway, I want to thank everybody again for their feedback. Even if I wasn't able to read it, I, I honestly had so much. I read all of them. I will try to respond to as many as I can. I found myself about a week ago responding to emails that you guys had sent me in November and December. So it does take a while for me to catch up, but I, I promise that I do make the effort Anyway, if you want to get in touch for any reason whatsoever, the email is linuxforeveryone at pm.me. A few days ago, the Linux for Everyone YouTube channel celebrated more than 2,000 subscribers, and I'm absolutely thrilled about that. So I recorded a quick thank you video over on the YouTube channel, and I want to play a short excerpt of it here, if you don't mind. A few months ago, 
when I decided to put the Linux for Everyone podcast on YouTube, I was still so adamant about not wanting to create any video. It was it was almost kind of like a it was a gesture for, you know, I know people like to consume their content on YouTube, so okay, let's just make a little audiogram video of the podcast and throw it up there at the same time uh, when the show comes out on the RSS feed and on the website. And then I decided, oh, I'm just going to get my feet wet a little bit, and I made this uh, short little bash script video. And in retrospect, you know, looking back on it, it was not the greatest, but first steps have to start somewhere. And I got a lot of encouragement on that, and it kind of propelled me to go forward. And so I did a couple more, and I... I kept finding ways to improve it and kept finding ways to just make the presentation better and make it more informative and more enjoyable. And then I kind of got hooked. And this is really interesting because in the summer of 2018, I made my switch to Linux. And it took making that switch to, to give me something that I could really sink my teeth into and cover something at Forbes that I consistently enjoyed and that I was consistently enamored with and and consistently wanted to just keep exploring and keep diving further down that rabbit hole. And of course, that's when the podcast started. And now here we are. And I I really love this because there are, well, it, it's it's kind of thrilling to use Linux to produce something else, right? In addition to writing, in addition to podcasting. Anyway, you can watch that entire video if you like. It's over at youtube.com slash Linux for everyone. And the reason I'm kind of touching on this is I noticed that in the last eight days, I had produced four or five actual videos for the channel, and they're they're all doing really well. And the feedback is like explosive, and I'm having so much fun. And uh, so if you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel yet please do it. I think you'll really enjoy what's there. I hope you do anyway. And for those of you who are into library, LBRY, I did just start an account, and I'm currently waiting for all of the YouTube content to sync over there, and then you'll also be able to find my video stuff on library as well. Final bit of housekeeping before we jump into my chat with Dustin. Game night number two, Destination Linux Network. It's happening on February 1st on Saturday, and you can read all about it at destinationlinux.network slash game night. We're doing it for our charity, Free Geek, and anyone who donates $40 or more to our charity will get a free copy of Zorin OS Ultimate, which is being graciously supplied to us to give to you by the Zorin team. So thanks, guys. All right. Without any more delay, let's jump into my chat with Ubuntu Budgie team member Dustin Kreisak. So, my very special guest on episode 25 is Dustin Kreisak, and he is a team member at Ubuntu Budgie. Mr. Dustin, welcome. Thanks for having me. So true story, you were the first person to join the Linux for Everyone Telegram group, 
And you were also cheering me on about starting this show before it ever got even close to starting. So I want to thank you publicly for that. And um, now, tell us, what is what goes into being an Ubuntu Budgie team member? Well, it kind of depends on what your interests are. You know, you're not locked down to doing any one particular thing. So, for example, when I came into the team, the intent was for me to do just packaging, or at least that's where my interests were. And to be honest, I still haven't started doing that. I went down other roads. So I dug in on the Snap packaging because we had some interest there for some of our own applications. And to be honest, it just seemed a little more approachable for someone who is newer to open source and specifically packaging at the time. And then I also ended up taking up, you know, the server administration just because that's sort of my background in my day job. Basically, the whole team gets to add feedback in across every aspect. So we're all a mini opinionated bunch, I guess. <laughs> so no, that's where... No no bunch of Linux people are opinionated. No, no. That never happens. And then there's other aspects of... If I wanted, I could start writing software. It just depends on time, right? Like it's time is always kind of the big issue is you're balancing work life, family life, contribution life. And it just really depends on how much time you have and what you want to do. Uh, the other aspect that I tend to take up is I try to interact more with some of the communities where our team members are not. So our team members are quite active on our forum. Our team members are active on our IRC channel if someone actually comes into there. However, as you probably noticed, you don't see them in the Telegram groups at all or the mm. podcasting circuit, as I like to call it. And so I tend right. to try to interact more in there to balance out, give some presence, you know, hopefully help someone if I can actually be useful. So that's kind of the role that I took in it. Um, there's always more things to do, whether it's documentation user interaction, social media. I mean, you can really do whatever you want. And I think most projects are open to that type of stuff because it's a people power problem, right? A lot of the teams, I suspect, are much smaller than the end user realizes. I feel like you were reading my mind right there because I was just <laughs> going to ask you what the size of the Budgie team is. I mean, obviously you have you know contributors around the world, but the actual core team that works on Budgie? So the active goes up and down, right? So you'll have a certain release cycle where everyone's either keen, has the available time, has naturally been engaged and has a very clear path of what they can do to contribute to that release cycle. And then other times, it'll skinny back just down to the core team. You know, I would say we have... And I'm always hesitant to put a number on this because people then make an assessment of the sustainability of a project based on the number of active people, right? Which is kind of true. It's kind of a consideration. But I would say that we have four core members that are active all the time. And then there's probably another three to eight people that come and go uh, based on their own personal time. I tend to consider that quite a small team. And just from talking to other people in other projects, it's not an uncommon problem. The long-term sustainability is always on your mind. You're always wondering, okay, what's it going to look like in three years? There's the hit the bus factor. 
if you look at the Solus project when Ike left, a lot of people were questioning, is the project going to be around? And Josh and the entire team has done an excellent job mitigating that. You know, I would say they're just as strong as they've ever been. But when you have a small team, there's always that thought. Some people, as we all know, humans are panicky animals. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, it's not big enough. I'm not going to do it. Do you feel like you can offer people a little bit more confidence and, and security in the, in the longevity of something like Budgie because it's an official flavor of Ubuntu? I would say is yes. There, is there any kind of security blanket there or any kind of help that you would get if something were to uh, start deteriorating? Yes, because we can call upon the entire people who are involved in the bigger ecosystem. So the best way I can give an example of that there's an IRC channel where all the flavors, either idle, discuss, talk about how we can help each other. Um, another great example is, so David, our team lead, as you know, recently there was a bunch to cinnamon that was launched. A lot of the bootstrap, David helped out with that. It's not his project. He's busy already, but he was, from my understanding, a guiding hand. That's really cool to hear. Yeah, definitely. And even just the fact that we occasionally have flavor meetings to discuss where the overlap is and what we can do to help each other. You know, patching packages is something that more people could be doing. Uh, understanding how to push these packages. There's so much work to be done. You know, some people look at Ubuntu, and I believe I even heard in the Telegram channels earlier today, like I saw someone saying, don't use Ubuntu. They're so slow to security patch unless it's something like, I don't know, one of their commercial backed products. But the reality is if you don't have people pushing, looking at the backlog, actually doing that packaging work, of course it's going to be slower. And that's something that all of the flavors can help each other with if someone's got some time to apply patches, you know, get the packages up to date and get them pushed out. So there's definitely overlap and there's definitely work that is done together. So even though you may have a small core team based on some of the flavors or the desktop environments, you also have to look at the sustainability based on the activity upstream. So I'm going to use Budgie is an example only because I have a little more familiarity. The sure. work that Solus does, we inherit, right? So even though maybe our little distro team is four to eight people at any given time, there's the extension of the Solus team who is actively patching the desktop, adding features. Work there is happening and we inherit it, right? So in some ways, there's an extended team if you look at it that way it actually makes perfect sense it does and it's it's reassuring to know that effectively you know everyone has each other's back there's people who are invested in the overall ubuntu ecosystem being healthy there's ebbs and flows but ultimately no one wants to see that ecosystem in a bad state and so it's kind of in the interest of anybody who's involved in ubuntu for all the flavors to be successful in some point People tend to think of it as a competition. Of course, we all have our different things that we're trying to accomplish. And of course, in some ways, we do compete for the user base. But 
The reality is you want, or should want anyways, the entire ecosystem to be healthy because we all benefit from it. We all benefit from having the Ubuntu portion of the name in our projects. There's a certain peace of mind that an end user gets by having Ubuntu in the name. You know, it's it's a larger project. Ubuntu proper is arguably one of the largest. You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. you could debate that any which way. I, I would like I would like to find a way to intelligently debate that, but the numbers seem to be so closely guarded. Um, not just with Ubuntu, but with many other distros. Or they're just not easy enough to quantify, right? And and you know, and get detailed enough uh, statistics for usage and downloads. So, I would love to have some kind of discussion about which one is the most popular. And no, you're not allowed to look at DistroWatch. Well, <laughs> to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, that's almost a given. I actually had this thought the other day. So I saw that Pope had posted on Twitter about uh, a bug report that he had done. And he, mm-hmm. his point of view, or not his point of view, sorry, but his comment was along the lines like, I opened a bug here, and then I incidentally opened, I'm not sure if it was a different bug or even the same one, and then he realized he opened it, but there was a large gap between the bug numbers, something like 10,000 entries. The thought I had, though, is maybe the sheer number of bugs being opened is not necessarily indicative of problems, but rather the size of the project. It kind of reflects in some ways, if you think about it, the size of the user base. There are a lot of people running into bugs, which any software is going to have. And more importantly, there's a substantial number of people actually opening those bugs. Because that's a problem. If you shrink the scope a little bit, again, back to Budgie, I look at the number of bugs that are opened. It's quite narrow in scope. It's a little smaller. But if you look at the Ubuntu bugs and the sheer number of them being open, that sort of indicates that people care, they're using it, and they're hoping to have it fixed, right? So I almost wonder if the number of bugs, at least in context, right, is somewhat an indicator of the size of the distribution and the community engagement. Because getting people to open bugs is difficult. Yes, it is. And that's actually <laughs> something else that I wanted to ask you about. It's it's almost like we have show notes, but I swear to God we don't. We uh, Dustin and I hopped on here and chatted off mic for about a half an hour and uh, and then we just said, "Okay, let's go." And we had I had no no agenda, no questions or anything, but it's kind of like he's reading my mind. Seriously though, we have to do something about bug reporting. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, and my point of view is there's there's two or three sides to the bug reporting story. You know, number one, reporting bugs is super important because I've been guilty of this. And I know that a lot of people do this. They run into a problem. And instead of fighting through that problem and submitting a bug report and trying to get to the bottom of it, well, I'm just going to reinstall. Well, I'm just going to hop over to this distro. Well, I'm just going to ignore this and find another solution, which is more of the nuclear option, instead of beating my head against this smaller problem. And, you know, like I said, I've done this too, because time is finite. Right. But I also don't feel like your average user can wrap their head around submitting a bug report. It's different for every the 
the locations are different for every distro, the procedures are different. And so I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on what's the state of bug reporting with the Ubuntu family and, and how can we make that better? And maybe how can we spread the word a little bit and, and, and tell people how important it really is? I, I don't think you can even narrow the scope to just Ubuntu because I'm pretty sure that this is a problem most projects probably have. Yeah, and my 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 narrowing it to Ubuntu was just because of your position. Right. Just your, you know, your field of uh, of vision, so to speak. But but yeah, if you want to expand it, please go for it. Well, I think part of the problem anyways is that you can't assume that every user is a technical user. You can't assume that every user understands the concepts between upstream, downstream, the fact that one package in a distribution might be maintained by an entirely different team, right? So how does the non-technical user or even the user who is not invested in the Linux ecosystem, who's in it because of their passion, knows where to go to open what bug with what tool, right? Because even the process, if again, I can only speak against what I'm experiencing within our project. So if you think about it, the desktop, in theory, should go to Solus, right? They are the front line on the desktop. And for people, for people who don't know, Solus uh, is the group that actually develops the budgie desktop. And then if you look at the bits of software that the Ubuntu budgie team uh, manufactures, obviously you need to come to us with those bug reports. Now, you also have the components of the underlying Ubuntu system where those bug reports technically need to go into the Ubuntu bug tracker. And you also have the same problem. Like even if you step back a little bit and don't talk about a bug report, even asking a question sometimes has the exact same problem. So at times we will get people coming into our forums asking about, say, a Wi-Fi driver. And not everyone on our team may be knowledgeable enough to solve that problem. Or it requires a, a, a broader audience to help solve that problem or even report that bug. So then what do you do? Hmm. Well, then you're pulling that move where you're saying, well, can you actually go ask the question here? Maybe the Ubuntu forums, maybe in another project's tracker. And it's a little tough because even though you need to do that sometimes to get them the right kind of help, you feel like, or rather, you don't want to make them feel like you're just deferring them. You know, sorry, not our problem, close the ticket. At the same time, the more steps you ask someone to take, the less likely they are to get to the end of those steps. And the other problem with bug reports, too, is sometimes you get people who will open the bug, but you can't get the additional interaction with them to actually solve the bug. Because it's not always possible to reproduce that bug on the equipment, hardware, maybe the graphics card, driver for Wi-Fi. You may not have any of that. And the only way to solve the bug is to keep that user engaged in the bug process. And it's not always possible. They'll open it happily. But following back, doing the requested testing on follow-up, or for the follow-up, sorry, you, you can't always get someone to do that. And I get it. People have yeah, other interests. They have other priorities. They maybe want to log it just so that someone can fix it, but you can't always fix it if they don't stay involved or stay engaged. And I don't blame anyone for that. 
I'm glad you said this because it's something that I often overlook is that it's, you know, the process of submitting a bug report, it's more than submitting it mm-hmm. sometimes in order to get it resolved. It's, it is that constant back and forth that, uh, that is sometimes necessary. And that, like I said about those steps, you know, the longer you try to have someone engaged and involved in a problem, the more likely they are to just kind of step away or, or ignore it or forget about it even. Right. But you, you and I were talking once about um, some of the teams, some of the development teams for these distros having very limited access to a wide range of hardware. Yes. Right? Is that something that is a pain point? Well, let's put it this way. I don't know if you noticed, we had no 4K support in any of the applets we built. Our bugs on 4K took a long time to get resolved because no one on the team had 4K hardware. We recently had a hardware sponsor that allowed us to at least purchase a laptop for one of our developers who was working predominantly on the applets. Guess what? Now the 4K bugs are getting fixed. His applets are coming out with 4K support. Um, We have, so I don't know if you're familiar with the Windows Shuffler, which is Windows Management and Budgie that one of our team members, Jacob, was working on. He could actually fix the 4K issues with the window management. Prior to, I believe, our last release, it wasn't even feasible. No one had 4K. Another great example is people with the hybrid GPU. We can't even begin to build a budgie applet to manage that because no one on our team has a hybrid graphics card. How do you build that? How do you test against it? How do you support it if you don't have it? This is what I this is what I suspected and I I think that a solution is in the works. I, I can say that, <laughs> that that some people and two of them are on this podcast right now. Um, and I think Popey is another one and uh, Das Geek and Michael from Destination Linux. We're all trying to put our heads together and figure out, can we gather uh, an army of, of hardware testers who are happy to, you know, give their, their specs for their hardware and say, like, I have, you know, I have X amount of time per release cycle or per week or per month to help you test this. And then when your applet developer runs up against that problem with 4K, you can reference this group of of volunteers, of contributors, because we have to call them contributors at that point, which is awesome, and go, hey, um, you've got a 4K monitor, you have a hybrid graphics laptop, here is our situation, would you just mind testing this for us? I mean, that doesn't seem impossible to attain, even if it's a hundred people worldwide who have a decent range of hardware amongst them. Is, is that, is that something that could get closer to solving this problem? Well, it definitely helps with the testing of existing software. The only gap I would propose that that maybe still has is the fact when you're developing a new piece of software that maybe requires 4k support. And that's just an example and the developer doesn't have that hardware, you can't even really iterate on it easily to add that support. Unless, of course, you have someone who's willing to test every build, test every iteration, 
actively communicate, which isn't always possible because of people's time. Having an army of testers is absolutely amazing. Do not get me wrong. That is needed. That is something that does not exist today, and it does prove difficult. If you look at the timelines when Ubuntu is coming up on a release, you know, every time we cut a new ISO, and we meaning the entire ecosystem, you need testers just on the ISO release itself. You're not even talking about the software that's included in. You're talking about people who will run through the installer, make sure all the checkboxes do what they're expected to do. And in the Ubuntu ecosystem, there is a QA tracker just for ISOs. And a lot of the time, it is the various flavor people that are helping the other flavors get through that checklist so that they can say, yes, boom, go for a release. We feel confident enough that that can go out. Now, a lot of the community members who help test, most times it's in a VM, still valuable. No discredit there, no devaluation. However, getting people to run things on raw hardware, it's a different experience. It has different considerations. And having people who either have a spare or are willing to, you know, blow away their installation just to run through an installer, it's it's smaller. So what that hardware testing group is looking to do is insanely valuable. It absolutely is. But there's two components to being able to improve a distribution with new features, new software that require certain kinds of support. Is it feasible at all for you guys to um, direct some of the donations that you receive towards some of that really critical hardware that you need? Or do you have enough donations for that to be something that's realistic? Well, to be honest, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. It comes down to how many donations a project gets and the priorities of where that money needs to be spent. And by that, I mean, you know, you have infrastructure to host your website. Not that that's a big cost, but if you've done any sort of custom build pipelines, CICD, uh, hosting a forum, whatever you need to run a project, you know, there's always internal tools that you use. A lot of people would probably assume that it's only open source, but sometimes there's certain things that the user experience is just that much better. Uh, And so, again, it comes down to priorities. So, yes, we would love to buy the whole team new hardware, but the reality is, is, at least in our case, we don't have enough donations to do that. And the other thing is you have to be careful with how you spend your money and how your community perceives it, or at least that's my opinion. Because if you're constantly just buying hardware and everyone's getting new toys and things like that, your community may or may not necessarily agree with that and how you're spending the donations. Now, we try to operate very transparently. We do a summary of where the money was spent every year and where the what sort of like our current account balance is and what we plan to do with it. And a lot of times you don't always solicit the community for feedback on how you should spend it. It's not infeasible. In fact, a lot of projects do it. And I would argue that, you know, I think it's a good thing if you can provide value to justify why you're buying that hardware. I mean, I guess you could look at it like, you know, government taxes. Not everyone agrees with how the government spends that tax money, right? So... (laughs) 
But it's definitely feasible. Projects definitely do it. But I think it's easier to do that if you have a higher donation rate. We, we talked earlier about, you know, kind of the, the backing that you have from being part of the Ubuntu family and from the Linux community at large. How do you go about keeping it sustainable from a financial side? Well, you be careful on how you spend your money. It's like any personal finance or business finance. You know, you watch your rate of income versus your rate of expenditure. You prioritize and you spend it where you have to. And maybe you don't always go and spend it when you have it in the bank, right? It's, it, honestly, it's a lot like just a regular finance. But I think the, the real takeaway is how do you make donations sustainable? What value are you providing to your community, right? Because sure, maybe you're releasing a distro, but it's also something that people can just go grab, right? Like there's no real driving force for them to do donations. So I can't remember who I was talking about, but it's the value add on top, I think, is what may drive additional donations. It's not necessarily just the base distro, because let's face it, if someone either can't afford, doesn't want to afford, or doesn't agree with it, they can just go grab a distro anywhere. Like there's, like, there's lots of them. There's really no... There are a few to choose from, yeah. <laughs> there's no shortage of options. So the real takeaway is, why would they donate to your project? Whether it's a distro, whether it's a tool, it doesn't matter. You know, I, th I think that's something that people struggle with is how to monetize the desktop to get developers paid. And Ryan and I have, uh, from Destination Linux have had this conversation. It's very difficult. People like Elementary are trying their app store. They're going, you know, quite different from the traditional model. Most projects seem to default to a donation model, right? And it's Nothing Most wrong projects, if I can, I cannot speak for all projects, but I'm going to say that in my field of view and with the people that I talk to um, because of the show or because of Forbes or whatever else, it seems like um, they don't want to take the route that elementary is taking by kind of suggesting that it's a paid distro up front and letting you put the zero in if you, if you choose to. And by having paid apps, why do you think there's that resistance? I, I think historically part of, and I'm going to call it a problem. I don't know if it's truly a problem, but historically some people came to the ecosystem not because of open source and sort of what it may or may not stand for to certain people, but because everything's free. Think about it. How many pieces of software. is very yeah, attractive. It, and, yeah. and even from a corporate point of view, an enterprise, like when... In my day job, I had to introduce certain features or I needed a tool or something like that. A lot of times, the path to least resistance was to go open source because there was no cost to the corporation, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that is definitely a quote-unquote selling point in certain cases. People need to realize, of course, there's additional support costs. Like, it's not cut and dry like that, but... There is definitely that aspect in open source that everything is quote unquote free. And I think that's where someone like elementary might get some pushback, but I honestly respect what they're trying to do. They're trying to do something different, right? Like you don't know what works until you try. And if you don't try, you're never going to know. There's no data to support it one way or the other. Sure. They may do this for the next five years. And find out, you know what, it's not working. 
Maybe we need a different approach. But you know what? Hats off to them. They're trying something different because what's happening today isn't necessarily working. Well, I wouldn't say it's not working, but it's not growing, if that makes sense. You know, like, how do you make a project sustainable? People only have a finite amount of time. They only have a, and, and you can only run on desire or excitement for so long, right? <laughs> it's at one point, it becomes a job. Pick almost any project that has had a moderate amount of success. Go look at the issue tracker. Go see how fast things are getting closed, how much the author or authors or team are interacting with the tickets like you can see that people get burnt out it's it's not hard to see the ebbs and flows of any given project people have a finite amount of time and if you're doing a project in your spare time the reality is there's other obligations it's just that simple so how do you get around that how do you make it where people can really drive growth in the ecosystem well focus how do you get focus you got to take away some of the distractions Everyone in life needs to eat. So what are you going to do? You have to either bring it back into where you can have a sustainable model to still eat while you do open source full time, hmm. if that's sort of your passion, or you just sort of keep going with what you have. That is a, a, a delicate and complex situation to, to really look at good vibes and accolades and and community interaction and um camaraderie with your your team members that can all take you pretty far but at the end of the day in my opinion good developers making good products need to make good money well especially when they can focus elsewhere go take a paycheck and they can actually make a living in my mind there's no question that open source However broad your definition of what that is, has quote-unquote one. But there's definitely different reasons of why people are in open source. Some are for the ethos behind it. Some are for profit. If you look at it from a growth perspective, which projects have grown the most in the last, I don't know, 10 years? It's in what I call commercial open source. They have corporate backers. There are funds available. There are people available to do the work. There are people who can focus on the project. And there are people who can focus on the project outside of writing code, whether it's community engagement, whether it's growth, whether it's a growth strategy, whether it's marketing, you know, it's materials, documentation. These are all the things that a lot of the non-commercial open source projects struggle to do. There's a lot of focus on code, which, okay, that's great. But from a growth perspective... Commercial open source has blown it out of the water. And I get it. Why? It's, there's people there. There's a bigger team. Does that mean it's better? No, that's not what I'm saying. If there's funding behind it, the growth seems to be there. And the other aspect you have to think about as to why people, even the non-paid people are contributing there. In commercial open source, there's an aspect of it to your resume. Why you do open source, there's numerous reasons. And for some people, not everyone, it's a resume builder. So they might be involved from a resume aspect. People might be involved from a financial aspect. People might be involved because of passion. 
they might be involved because of scratching their own itch. There's many different reasons, right? Hmm. But to have growth in where, let's say, this community's passion is, the desktop, there needs to be a consideration of how people can focus on this, how you can grow it. And no, it's not always financial, but it's definitely an aspect. Here's a, here's a great example. Look at elementary. Daniel works full-time on elementary. Cassidy recently started working full-time. You look at the output in the public eye that they've had since Cassidy's become, say, more vocal on Twitter. There's a difference. You can see it. You can see the work happening. You can see the paper cuts, the sandpaper, the mine. I'm going to call it the minutia, like the little details that tend to get deprioritized because you only have so many people. They're not deprioritizing them. They're actually addressing them. They're looking at how they can improve the small things, which is amazing. And why is that? Well, there's two people working full time on that project, you know, and they've yeah. done a great job on so developers. I'm so happy for them, by the way. I just, you know, yeah, it's like, so cool to see to see those success stories. Absolutely. And I have nothing respect for that project because they're kind of beating their own path. I see no problem with their model and I see no problem with any other project's model. You got to figure out what works for you and your community. And hopefully at some point there's going to be a way that maybe something will come to light that will help or become clear to the larger communities, right? How do you, and I, and I hate even saying, how do you monetize it? And but the consideration is with monetization, you have growth, you have dedicated people, you have people putting the hours in, and you can expand the scope beyond code as to what needs to be done to drive that growth. Yeah. And then, and then it all just keeps expanding outward because money is coming in. You're, you know, you're devoting yourselves to those issues, you're devoting yourselves to growth. Right. You grow, more money comes in. It's just it's just that finding that uh that secret ingredient of how to monetize, you know? Right. Like for, look at look at what Zorin OS is doing. I think that's brilliant too. Uh the Zorin Grid right. initiative that they're rolling out this summer. Um, that's the value of Yeah, for those that might have missed it, that's here's our, you know, here is our cool free desktop, but here's this simple way to manage it for your organization or for your school and to deploy it out to like dozens or thousands of mm -hmm. Zorin OS machines at the same time and manage them a lot like the uh, Google Management Console for Chromebooks, yeah. very much the same concept. And so they found a way to turn this free product into something that can bring them revenue without impacting the existing users that are using Zorin OS for free. Absolutely. And you don't know until you try. Right. Yeah. So like, I, those ideas are out there. We they just have to be um, <laughs> conceived, I guess. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. It's it, it's a tough thing to figure out. And if it wasn't, then we would probably be in a different space right now. Uh, if you talk in terms like again growth and look outside of monetization, how do you grow? Well, it's exposure. You know, you said this about marketing, and someone else said this, and I don't remember where I heard it. Probably on one of the podcasts. But the growth market is not the existing user base. And it's not. The people who are mm -hmm. using Linux today are in it because they've made their choice. That really sounds like Noah. 
it, to me. It could that, be. That sounds like it, something it, Noah would know. Absolutely, say. or but. even something maybe Popey or Martin said on Twitter. I, I don't know. I th- I've mm-hmm. I've heard a few people sort of have similar thoughts. But where's the growth? The growth is outside of that market, which is more targeting towards the mainstream, the people who have not decided to be here yet, or don't know that they could be here yet, or even what it looks like. That's that's the create. That's the most difficult segment to reach is the people right. who aren't even aware that they could be here and how easy it, it would be for them to be here. Well, let's yeah. call it what it is, the mainstream. How do you mm-hmm. get into the mainstream, right? It's it's marketing. It could be marketing dollars. It's exposure to people. It's mainstream people being exposed to, you know, the the bait, right? Why why would what what can that solve for me? You know, what pain can it solve? And the question is, is getting the information out to the people through different outlets. Because the average person, like my mom, is not going to Ars Technica even. And that's not even, that's more mainstream than what I'm even trying to make a point with. But that's my point. (laughs) It's considered somewhat mainstream in the technical world, but we're not talking about technical people, you know? No, not. and and I really I really have to disclude myself as well because you know you could say oh but surely they're going to Forbes no they're not they're going to Walmart they're going to <laughs> Best Buy they're watching the news can you pick up a can you pick up an XPS thirteen with Ubuntu eighteen oh four at a Best Buy or a Walmart not guess yet. what that's that's when the tipping point starts to happen I think well hopefully now that I mean kudos to Dell for actually showing a laptop with Ubuntu on it at CES. Like that's yeah, a good thing. Definitely. Now mm-hmm. let's see whether that drives it into a place like a Best Buy or a Fry's or whoever's supplying or stocking these things. That is a win. That's getting into the mainstream. That is new exposure to users or rather a user base that we haven't touched. And you might even argue whether you like it or not. That's something that Google's been successful with, with the Chromebook because they have that reach They've had the marketing. They've had the sales force behind it to build up Chromebooks and education to hook in to the younger generation. Why do you think that Chromebooks succeeded the way that they did? Because they abstracted the underpinnings that were difficult or could be perceived as difficult to the mainstream, not to the Linux user not to even the Windows user or any technical user, it doesn't matter your platform. They abstracted it and made it so simple to operate, to take care of some of the things that the average user does not even look at, like backups. The average user, until they lose their photo folder, probably <laughs> doesn't even consider a backup. Google knows that tens and millions of people are, this is what they're using most of the time on Windows. Right. They're using Chrome. They're using Gmail. They're using Drive. They're using, you know, they basically took their ecosystem and plopped it down into a simple piece of hardware and then promoted the crap out of it. The reality is it's not always approachable in Linux. There's not enough of an abstraction out of the box for the everyday user, not the technical users mm, that have already totally decided to be there, right? Like it's it's not hard to use the GUI as it is today. It's not. But because people haven't heard of it, they're scared of it. They don't know what it is. They don't know if they can trust it, you know, until it's 
being talked about in the mainstream, right? Like there's always the early adopters. Our early adopters came 20 years ago, but we haven't. I think, I think if you look at the, the, uh, the share of, you know, share of the market, we're all still the early adopters. Well, for sure. But even right. so, in a, way, in a way, yeah. But there's what I would call the second wave about four years ago, three years ago. There seemed to be sort of be this cusp of the hill that's been crossed over to where it's just that much more approachable. And I can even speak from my own experience, like, yeah, I've used Linux for years. I didn't always run it on my desktop because the experience wasn't there. For a lot of the stuff I had to do in my day job, I couldn't use Linux. There were no alternatives. But, well, I shouldn't say there were no alternatives. There were no um, alternatives that had a good user experience, right? Like, if I'm working in a day job, I need to get my work done. I can't fiddle with the system. Like, I can't. It's just not an option. That's why you're not a KDE user. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. That was a bad bad attempt at a joke. (laughs) No, no. But, I mean, with even that being said, but that is still a good example. Some people just use the tool because they want to get the job done. And now, within that last three to four years, there are viable options across the board for most things. Outside of the edge cases, or not even edge cases, the unique cases that may be even driven by perception, like the Adobe suite. You know what? There are some great alternatives. Now, sure, these alternatives are not industry standards. Sure, there is not a critical mass of documentation, tutorials, and training. I get it. Absolutely. But if you're willing to learn, there are alternatives. That, though, that I think is the biggest hurdle aside from getting major OEMs to ship Linux to big box retailers is if you're willing to learn. And there's nothing really that I feel like we can do about that. I can't preach a message of, hey, look, you have to learn something new. No. Because I shouldn't expect that of somebody. Nope. And that's where I go back about the abstractions. If things are intuitive, it doesn't feel like learning. Like if you can... Log into a system, open up a piece of software, whatever it is, read a book, but things are intuitive, regardless of whether it's software, a sport, uh, a subject matter you're trying to learn. If it's approachable and people get that early win, it means a lot. And then people become more willing or interested to then take up the learning portion of the endeavor. But you need to be able to hook people in on intuition to where... They either have some productivity or perception of progress. I don't want to say there's too much opinion, but there's no clear place to land in the Linux world where you can just run on intuition because you talk to a Linux user while you're learning things. Well, they're going to say, well, you should use this desktop. And someone else can say, well, no, you should use that desktop. Well, no, you should use this browser. No, you should use that browser. Oh, hey, this is the best way to do this on Linux through the terminal. No, this is the best way to do it in the GUI. We are so divided, not in a negative way, but we're just, everybody is so preferential and that's, that's fine. That's cool. But there's no abstraction to make it approachable at all. Everything is technically approachable. It is, but you have to look outside of the people who have already decided to be here. Not everyone wants to learn. Not everyone wants this barrier to become productive. They just want to use a tool and get there. 
what we have today, we've quote unquote won already. We've got those people. We've got the buy-in there. Where we don't have the buy-in is the people who don't understand the technical aspects, the benefits or why you want to be here or the freedoms, you know, both in monetary and rights, privacy, all of that stuff. A lot of people don't care about that. You need to lower that barrier to entry and you need to sort of have that unified presentation, I think. What does that look like on Linux, which is overrun with so much awesome, abundant, sometimes crippling choice? You Crippling choice? I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> because who can decide which one is right? Or at least that's the way people are going to look at it. My system is really the end user who is, I mean, I don't know I I can't do that for you. I can guide you to it, but I can't, I can't, you know, beat down the door and say, Ubuntu budgie, you arch, you, you right. But maybe there's an advantage to showing people through one door and then showing them the buffet on the other side. I agree. Choice is good. Competition is good. But what you'll never get is the... Linux community or Linux desktop community as a whole to agree on what that initial entry point is. Well, and understandably so. I mean, if we if we as an entire community made that choice, that would be debilitating to so many other projects. Potentially, absolutely. And I don't think you will ever get the community to agree. I mean, you could do you know, no. traditional democracy we can't even vote agree on package managers. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, or you know, you go back to when like anything new, like System D, was introduced. I mean, there's a big debate there historically, and no, I don't really want to get into that one. But it's no, just a it's, great no. example. You have opinions, and that's okay. But for the introductory to the mainstream, that's why. It's difficult, or at least that's why I think it's difficult, is because there's no one vanilla way to introduce it. You know, like if I look at my own preferences, I'm a huge fan of sane defaults and vanilla because I can just install it, I can go, and I can go get something done. That's probably the biggest reason I'm not a large distro hopper. Like I'm, I don't want to. Lucky. (laughs) I don't. I don't want to (laughs) spend. all day tweaking my settings. I don't want to have to remember how I tweaked my system. I mean, that's the biggest reason I've automated my own desktop deployments. Like I reloaded my last my laptop this morning in 30 minutes and it has the exact same settings as my desktop because I automated it all. That sounds like a discovery of the week. <laughs> so uh, I want to hear more about that at some point. <laughs> It's just I do that like three times a week with all the hardware I have around here. Well, for sure. I mean, your use case is a little different than mine, right? Like part of what your job or passion is, is the various types of hardware. Now, if I had a ton of hardware, maybe I would be doing more. But even then, I tend to run the same thing on my desktop as my laptop and my Mm -hmm. test laptops. In fact, the way my automation works is... When I make a change, for example, even installing software, I commit it to a repository and all those systems suck down the software when they check in next. So I have the same software on every system. My budgie settings are set up via automation. They So I change my wallpaper. Oh, 
it mm. checks in and then all my systems suck down and get the same wallpaper. I just don't want to have to manage it because I have other things. Okay. I have to butt in here because a few months ago, you and I were talking about this concept where uh, people might be able to sync some of their more important uh, settings and maybe configuration files and wallpapers and things like that with um, Budgie. Were you, was that something that you guys were working towards? Well, there's some kind of, some kind of sync yeah, program. Yeah, there's, there's some proof of concepts right now. We have okay. a community member who has written the logic out in a shell script, which is not where it would ultimately end. But that person contributing the logic and the considerations was insanely valuable. We just haven't gotten to the point where, you know, you pick a language, which one's who's going to do the work to make it right. production ready. You know, how do you want that syncing mechanism to work? I mean, we've already decided that we don't want to run a quote unquote sync service per se, like with infrastructure because user privacy, uh, different sorts of compliance requirements, you know, like, uh, uh, like what the U is, you know, it's very privacy sensitive and it's right. something that with a team the size that we have, it's not feasible to run a production service in that case. We would probably more take the approach of, you know, exporting your settings, having the proper logic for import export and allowing the user to choose their own syncing mechanism, retain control of their data, you know, something like a sync thing, a Dropbox, a Google drive, like wherever, whatever strikes your fancy that works for your workflow, use those existing sync mechanisms rather than, you know, reinventing nice. the okay. wheel. Okay. So we have some initial work done. It's not ready, but it's, it's on its way. That's exciting. And yeah, I, I mean, it's exciting that it's even being considered because I think that's a real area of opportunity for, for all Linux distributions. Before you go, I, I just want to bring it back into some more positive, uplifting stuff and, and actually focus a little more on Budgie because I, I feel like maybe I haven't given you enough time to, uh, you know, to, to really shine a light on the awesomeness of Budgie. So tell me this. <laughs> There's probably a lot of people listening to this that have never tried Budgie, some that may not even be aware of Ubuntu Budgie. Uh, what would you say are the the two or three highlights of that distro that people would really love? Well, I would say the best way I can summarize it is it's simple by default out of the box, same defaults, but there is room for customization via applets, via add-ons, things like that. But the idea is, is that you can download it, you can install it, and you can just get to work if that's what you want. Beyond the modern architecture behind it, you know, it's one of the newer uh, desktops in context of when it was built. So you don't have a large legacy code base that you're always working around. I like to ask people who are directly involved in distros. I, I know that you guys always need a wide range of, of help in different categories. But if if someone listening right now wanted to get involved with Ubuntu Budgie, what is kind of the thing you need most that they could help you with? Well, I would say probably one of the biggest things that would be helpful is on the marketing and advocacy point of view. Because if you even look within, I'm going to use the Telegram groups as an example, you have occasional people talking about it. 
we're not big comparative to a lot of the other distros. The coverage we maybe get is lower because we're not in there really pushing it. You know, we're not great at marketing. We don't have anyone who's kind of focused on that. You know, we do best efforts. So that's one aspect. It's not the only one. Uh, there's things like documentation and testing is always helpful. Yeah. Yep. You know, like th- those ones for every project, we could reiterate that over and over and over. Probably the biggest thing is reach out. Just ask us a question. What do you need help with? Or if you have some sort of talent that you talent or experience or something you do in your day job, you would be quite surprised at how much of that can apply to a project. And this line, I've heard you say this line before or a variation of it. It was on, uh, I think it was on Twitter. I don't know where, it doesn't matter where it was, but talking to you about contributing to distributions led to one of my favorite articles that I've written at Forbes because it just felt so good to write it about, no, you don't have to know code to make a difference in the open source and and desktop Linux community. And um, you were a big inspiration for that. So I just wanted to butt in and say that. Well, glad to help. <laughs> I mean, here here's another great example. By trade, I am not a coder. I'm not. I like to write code. I'm a hobby developer. And I'm even hesitant to use the word developer. (laughs) You know, like my contributions aren't really code based so far anyways. I mean, sure, Mm -hmm. I might expand into that, but I'm not. There's systems in the back end to be run. Like how many Linux users are system administrators? How many Linux users work in automation day to day? How many people work in a software development house not writing code? Like there's experience. Experience is valuable. How many people manage or are taking social media classes like in school? Art, theming, like, I'm sorry, coders are not designers. Elementary's gotten around that because they have some great design (laughs) people, you know, there's help like that photography you know everyone runs a wallpaper contest but the reality is it's still valuable it contributes building a brand like people who say are in the design world and they want something for their portfolio maybe you're taking a design class build a proper brand for a distribution you know brand guidelines all that stuff that would be that would be invaluable i'm sure yeah design assets that can be used in blog posts videos you know, there's all kinds of stuff. There's the Q&A aspect, just testing, just getting access to hardware. There's so much that can be done. There's financial aspects. There's people who maybe, I don't know, they're, you're, you're a lawyer by day and maybe you understand how a corporation should be, or maybe a corporation is wrong, but maybe a project should be structured to be able to accept donations in multiple countries because there's aspects in the back end that a lot of people probably don't even consider. I can't see what you can do, but if what you do can be valuable in any given job, there's a good chance that it would be valuable in a project in some capacity. And honestly, just having a conversation with someone can help them identify. Like I've gotten on 
various video calls with people who wanted to know how to contribute. And my first question is, what do you do? What's, what's your passion? What do you want to do? Right? Because if a contributor is not engaged as in, they're not doing the task they find fun, engaging, they're mm -hmm. passionate about, it's not going to be sustainable. They're not going to be around in the long term if you're just saying, hey, go write docs. Maybe they're not passionate about documentation. I don't fault anyone for that. Mm -hmm. If you're going to volunteer your time, you should be doing something you want to do. You know, like Absolutely. Yeah. if don't get hung up on the code, I, I honestly can say that I don't write a lot of code for budgie. Some of that might be imposter syndrome feeling like I can't support it properly. I don't know. But the point is, you don't have to focus on that. It's a skill that maybe you want to do it long term, right? But come in the door, help where you want to help, where you can help. And you'd be surprised at how many people are more than willing to be a guiding hand. Well, and it, it kind of sounds to me like uh, you're one of those mentors now. Well, I'm, I would like to try to be, <laughs> and I'm not, I don't know everything, right? So I try to be where I can, absolutely. But there's key people that were in effect on me when I started, you know, like in the day to day with the overall Ubuntu ecosystem, like Simon Quigley is very passionate there. You know, he's been a very large help in the back end trying to find out how to do things. Meeting Martin and Popey at Linux Fest, you know, like just talking to people or, or appear or help people think things are more approachable and that they can talk to people. Sure, not everyone can answer every message. Not everyone always replies because, again, I'll use like uh, Martin or Popey as an example. Like they're very visible in the community because they run the Ubuntu podcast. They're developer advocates uh, for Snapcraft, Martin's now the desktop, like his world, like Martin specifically, I'm sure his ingress of data has got to be insane. So like, don't think that people aren't approachable because they don't respond. They just might not have the time. But if you express an interest, there's a resounding chance that someone's going to either point you in the right direction, even if they're not the one that helps you directly, or at least help you figure it out. I'm hopefully going to point a lot of people in your direction, if you don't mind. Not at you all. You can tell us how, uh, <laughs> tell us how people can uh, get in touch with you on, I guess, your, your platforms of choice. Well, I'm predominantly on Twitter at BashfulRobot. Uh, I'm definitely in the various Telegram channels under the same username. And yep. outside of that, you can always reach out on the Ubuntu Budgie forum, discourse.ubuntubudgie.org. Uh, I'm around there and most of the team, that's where the majority of our team is around. But if you're looking for me specifically, those other spots are probably the best. Well, Dustin, it has been an absolute pleasure and it, it's been really both fun and educational, I think, just to hear your perspectives on so many different things and, and present these viewpoints that a lot of them I'd never even considered. And the funny thing is, proof that we didn't have any show notes for this, we actually decided to jump on the mic together because of one topic that we did not at all discuss <laughs> this whole time. So I'm going to have to get you back on the show again to talk about stuff like uh, FOSS versus commercial software on Linux, because that was what drove this whole thing together and we didn't even touch on it which is hilarious but uh i think we touched on a 
metric ton of other really interesting topics. Well, I had a blast being on and I appreciate the opportunity just to chat and pretty much anytime you want to go into the other topic, I'm around. I'm going to take you up on that. Anytime. <laughs> All right, man. See ya. All right, everybody, that is episode 25, and I really hope you enjoyed it. Dustin, I think, is a voice who needs to be heard more often and needs to be amplified. So definitely check him out, Bashful Robot on Twitter, Bashful Robot on Telegram. You'll see him in the Linux for Everyone Telegram channels, the uh, Destination Linux Network. He's also floating around in some of the Jupiter Broadcasting channels as well. The music you are hearing between segments on today's episode comes courtesy of Lorenzo's Music, and that's their track, Why Did I?, which is taken from Romcom Mixtape, and this is an album that they recorded, edited, produced entirely using Ubuntu Studio. You can find them at lorenzosmusic.com. You can find me on Twitter at Linux, the number four, everyone, and uh, many other social networks using that same tag. And the official site for the show is Linux, the number four, everyone.com. I'll see you in a week for episode 26. Hopefully, I'll see you in between that over on Telegram or Discord or Mastodon or Facebook or YouTube. Until we chat again, take care and take care of each other.